The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Everyone we've spoke to about Vega says he came back from Cuba a different man. What happened to him down there? <laughs> he was very emotional the whole time he was there, uh, talking to the locals, feeling sorry for them because they were poor he was rich. Truth is, he felt guilty. When Vega returned, he borrowed $200,000 in cash. Is it possible that he was trying to funnel money to the island, help some of the locals out, maybe? Not on my watch. Yeah, you can't have that. Rich people sharing their wealth? That's like socialism. Please. The truth is the kind of Vega, like all Americans, was spoiled. When the poverty was before his eyes, it's an unspeakable tragedy. And then, out of sight, out of mind. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, December 12, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Not only is capitalism still an unknown ideal, as the title of Ayn Rand's book by the same name indicated, but apparently it's also an unknown concept in any form, including even as a broken system. That's the lesson I took away from the latest Monk debate held in Toronto last week, which was a complete epistemological train wreck. Since there was no one at that debate to speak for capitalism, despite the pretense of making it appear so, that leaves it up to folks like us to carry the banner. On this, our final new broadcast of 2019, before we return again following the holiday season in January 2020. So before we get underway, don't forget... You can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support, and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. And that's certainly the theme of our final show for this year. Now back on our November 13th broadcast, we began what I then called a back-to-basics series of programs, beginning with reviewing some of the essentials pertaining to what capitalism actually is, and our show was titled Let Us Alone, or Laissez-nous Faire. So as if to offer us a test tube experimental confirmation of everything we demonstrated in that broadcast, well, along came this. Ran into this one on December 6th in the National Post. Headline, is capitalism broken? Yes, but the fix isn't obvious. And it was written by Eileen Donnelly. Quote, when four ideological foes took to the stage at Roy Thompson Hall in Toronto Wednesday night, December 4th, for a monk debate on capitalism, they found more common ground than you might expect. They were asked to debate the following motion. Quote, the capitalist system is broken, it's time to try something different, end quote. At the beginning of the night, a poll of 3,000 people in the audience showed them almost evenly divided. 47% believe capitalism was broken and beyond reform, the other 53% did not. An overwhelming majority, 79%, professed they were willing to have their minds changed by the debate, but in the end, the needle barely moved. Capitalism won a narrow victory with 55% of the audience voting against the motion at the end of the night, end quote. 
Well, after I came across this article, I immediately had to go online to the CPAC site to watch the debate for myself. And I have to say, right from the outset, it was a total train wreck in terms of any serious attempt to address that given motion. First, some necessary corrections in the coverage of what I just read. There were no four ideological foes on the stage. The common ground that they found was due to the fact that they were all ideological allies, one and all. And second, the motion itself was broken. I couldn't have voted for either side of that argument made since it ended up being a monologue presented as a debate. Four socialists arguing about how they would control capitalism. That's what it was all about, as you will hear for yourself on our show today. And the only way to win a debate of this nature is by defining your terms. And no one in the debate offered any clear definition of what capitalism was, and even more extremely, avoided defining what the something different they were proposing might be. So let's begin our own discussion on this topic by doing something that the participants at the Monk debate did not do. Let's define exactly what is meant by capitalism before we hear arguments about whether it's broken or not. And here's a proper and objective definition of capitalism as described by the person who was its greatest defender in the 20th century, Ayn Rand. Quote, Capitalism is a social system based on the recognition of individual rights, including property rights, in which all property is privately owned, end quote. Now note that capitalism is defined as a social system, not an economic system. Another way of looking at capitalism, then, is as a moral system based on the morality of individualism. And just as a sidebar, this past Sunday I watched author Stephen Moore in his YouTube interview with Dave Rubin lamenting the rise of socialism's popularity. And he suggested that the word capitalism should be abandoned because of its association with selfishness and greed. He preferred the term free markets or free economy. And while I don't have a problem with either of those terms, I think it's a bit naive to assume that those terms themselves will not eventually also become associated with selfishness and greed. You can't run from the basic ideological source of this conflict, forced altruism versus a freely exercised self-interest. It's because conservatives in particular run and hide from making this argument that socialism has won so many adherents. That's precisely why Ayn Rand's book, The Virtue of Selfishness, was written with that title. Rational self-interest is the moral base of any free society, and to fail to defend your right to act in your own self-interest is to eventually lose your freedom itself, as we shall now demonstrate. Streamed live on December 4th on CPAC, the Monk Debate on Capitalism featured four key speakers, two on each side of the debate motion, which was... The capitalist system is broken. It's time to try something different. And of course, as I said earlier, I strongly disagree with both sides in this ill-begotten debate, demonstrating once again why I find it necessary to emphasize at the beginning of each of our broadcasts that we're not right-wing. We're just right. So coming up next, I thought it best to begin with the left side of the motion, which was presented on this side of our upcoming bumper by Yanis Varoufakis, economist, author, and Greece's former finance minister. And on the return side of the bumper, we'll be hearing from Katrina Vandenhuvel, editorial director and publisher of The Nation and Washington Post columnist. Good evening, Toronto. Good, e good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We have a great debt of gratitude to capitalism. Capitalism liberated us from prejudice, superstition, backwardness, feudalism. But at the same time, we owe capitalism unbearable inequality, unsustainable debt, brazen authoritarianism, and yes, 
catastrophic climate change. There is no doubt that capitalism produced immense wealth, but it produced it on the same, exactly the same production line on which it also manufactured new forms of depravity. It lifted billions of people from poverty, it created new forms of desperation for many others. The problem with capitalism is that it is particularly inefficient at using the fantastic technologies and wealth that it produces. The problem with capitalism at the moment is that it is seriously undermining itself and by undermining itself being itself's worst enemy it is undermining humanity's capacity to share prosperity on planet Earth. Remember the Soviet Union, that awful contraption? It had as much to do with the principles of socialists as today's really existing capitalism has with free market ideology, none whatsoever. We live in a really existing capitalism which is against free markets. It has been against free markets since the invention of electromagnetism which gave rise to the Edisons, to the Fords, to the Grids, to the network companies, mega companies, the big business cartels that were fantastic at usurping states, replacing markets and fixing prices against the interest of their own supposed ideology. Really existing capitalism today is utterly inefficient. Think of the mega banks that were necessary to fund the mega corporations, how they have created fictitious capital based on mountain ranges of debt, of unsupportable debt, which periodically goes into a spasm. And it is profoundly anti-democratic in the sense that we have captains of industry and masters of finance that accumulate war chests with which effectively to buy politics. The ecological destruction is an essential aspect of this techno-structure. If you think about it, markets were never designed to produce public goods like the environment. They were only designed to create private goods. There is no way that this corporatized, financialized capitalism that we live in can ever value the scarce resources of our nature, of our environment. They will always assign a near zero price to it and therefore deplete it until it's gone. Ladies and gentlemen, the really existing capitalism that we live in has a lot more to do with the Chinese Communist Party than Adam Smith. Capitalism doesn't just have problems. Capitalism is broken. There is no doubt that we would not have civilization if we didn't have capitalism, but that's not the issue. The issue is whether capitalism can continue beginning to imagine a transition that we will affect through planning, a different way of running our corporations. Imagine for a moment corporations in which every worker in them, every employee has one share and one vote. Imagine a situation where we all have an account with our central bank. Imagine a situation where every born baby that is born, every newborn, gets a trust fund. Imagine a situation where we have more democracy by f having fewer elections and more lotteries by which to select our authorities. Capitalism is often equated with freedom, free markets, democracy, but my country's extractive capitalism 
is deepening inequality, undermining freedom, endangering democracy, ravaging nature. We urgently need an alternative. It's as if we're only offered two choices, robber baron capitalism or freedom-zapping state socialism. We've lived in mixed economies since the Second World War. As a result, there are many flavors of capitalism, some more palatable than others. But for 40 years, we have experienced the global spread of what I would call a neoliberal flavor and a well-funded attack on government's role as a moderating, countervailing force. Now, there is a Canadian-style capitalism with stronger protections and rules to protect the common good, public investments to reduce poverty and encourage social mobility and innovation. There's the flavor of Nordic capitalism, of Western European capitalism, with a robust social safety net, what I call a decency floor. Now, hailing from the United States, I care about transforming, rewiring, reimagining our extractive capitalism to create different outcomes. Because as I see it, there are three major ways U.S. capitalism is broken. It is fueling extreme inequality, it is consuming democracy, and it is destroying nature. And we've lived through four decades of stagnant wages, we still have stagnant wages, and staggering upward flows of wealth, which have supercharged the existing racial wealth divide and other inequalities rooted in gender and geographic differences. The good news is that we're having a long overdue debate about what will best protect our democracy and economy from plutocratic takeover. I believe my country would be far better off if we had fewer billionaires and many more thousandaires. Most families don't have $500 in the bank. They, don't even, they can't even pay their health care deductibles. I don't begrudge people who have done well and are all set. But please know most Americans are a long way from being set. To be clear, the next system I'm talking about isn't tweaking capitalism with a few more regulations and safety nets or adding a few green technologies. It is a deep, systemic, structural redesign of basic institutions and functions from ownership, banking, finance, resources, so that the economy serves the common good and protects the earth. Now, we may not call the next system capitalism or even capitalism 3.0, but we probably won't call it socialism either. So what are the next system's characteristics? There will be individual freedoms, private enterprises, vibrant small businesses protected from monopoly power. It will include different ownership systems, both broader individual wealth ownership, worker ownership of businesses, and there will be flourishing new business models. And what are some steps that would move us in the right direction? We need what I call a plutocracy prevention program. Not to be punitive, not to be punitive, but to protect democracy and ensure billionaires pay more in taxes than public school teachers and nurses. Such fair, just taxes will raise substantial revenue for vital public investments that will foster opportunity. The next system would include the strengthening of a public banking and investment system designed for what I call patient investment, not speculative capital, to rebuild our decaying infrastructure. It will require planning alongside markets. It will mean rewriting the rules of a rigged system. It will demand limits on wasteful consumption, especially among the world's richest 10%. There's a mountain of interdisciplinary research about how extreme inequalities of income, wealth, and opportunity undermine everything we care about.
And that is at the root of a capitalism that is no longer working. There are different models, as I said, call it what you will, inclusive capitalism, capitalism with a conscience, regenerative economy, capitalism 3.0. But if you care about democracy, if you care about public and personal health, social cohesion, economic stability, mental health, even sports and culture, the vast inequalities of income of power are damaging our society and economy. As you may know around the world, and particularly in America at this moment, communities are being ravaged by deindustrialization, by factories leaving, by opioid epidemics, which a public health system is incapable of caring for. That is a byproduct, a collateral damage of a capitalism, a capitalist system, which values profits over people. So I think we need to reassess, rethink, reimagine capitalism and move beyond what I said earlier, the cartoon characterizations. We're not talking about socialist planning. We're talking about a different kind of capitalism that will enhance the power, the possibilities. Yanis Varoufakis said that he owed a great debt of gratitude to capitalism because it liberated us from superstition, prejudice, feudalism, backwardness, but gave us unbearable inequality, unsustainable debt, brazen authoritarianism, and catastrophic climate change. Well, that's outrageous. Consider the glaring contradiction. Capitalism liberated us from tremendous social and economic evils, yet in so doing somehow created an equal number of social and economic evils. <laughs> Brazen authoritarianism is not a component of capitalism by any definition. So to continue calling a system in which such authoritarianism exists capitalism, or worse, broken capitalism, is an epistemological falsehood. What he's described is a form of collectivism. Unbearable inequality? Well, what preceded that inequality before capitalism liberated us from ignorance? Well, unbearable equality, because everyone was poor. And keep in mind that when those on the left speak of equality, they're always being very materialistic about it. They mean equality of wealth, not of opportunity or of equality before and under the law. To achieve the former, the latter must be destroyed. And unsustainable debt is not a consequence of creating wealth. It's the consequence of government spending more than they take in. And of course, the catastrophic climate change he's really talking about is the political and social climate, the one from poverty and ignorance to one of wealth and knowledge, which he now wants to reverse. And he says, no doubt that capitalism produced immense wealth, but it also manufactured new forms of depravity. It lifted billions from poverty and created new forms of desperation. Again, total nonsense and contradiction. Depravity? What the hell's he talking about? We never did get an example. And how does lifting billions from poverty possibly create new forms of desperation for others? The desperation he's referring to is the envy experienced by those who are not fortunate enough to live in a capitalist country. You can't blame capitalism for the non-capitalist country's situations. Please, stop doing that. The problem with capitalism, he says, is that it is particularly inefficient at using the fantastic technologies and wealth it produces. Well, he's talking about capitalism in the, like, as, like capitalism's a person or something, as if capitalism itself is the consumer of the technology and wealth, and that, that's a mental aberration. I mean, it's people who live in a capitalist society, and they're the ones who are using the wealth and the technologies. 
And what are they doing that's so inefficient? What, am I not using my phone properly? Is my TV set too loud? What the hell is he talking about? Capitalism is seriously undermining itself and becoming its own worst enemy. It's undermining humanity's capacity to share prosperity on planet Earth. Well, that's global communism, isn't it? This is the disaster of humanity for centuries. And here's an idiot getting up in front of a Canadian audience and actually advocating this. Then he says the Soviet Union had as much to do with the principles of socialism as today's capitalism has to do with the free market. None whatsoever. Nonsense. That's an outright lie. Or it's an admission of ignorance on the part of the speaker. The evils of all collectivist societies, including the former Soviet Union, China, and a whole host of communist countries, are perfectly consistent with the principles of socialism, please. The cardinal principle being the initiation of force against the citizenry. They all do it. We live in a capitalism which is against free markets. Oh, jeez. I can't believe this guy. There's no such thing as a capitalism that's against free markets. That's a contradiction in terms. Free markets are an essential element of what can only be called capitalism. To the extent free markets do not exist, neither does capitalism. Then he says it's been against free markets since the invention of electromagnetism. Man, I, I almost couldn't believe it when I heard him say that. Which gave rise to the Edisons, the Fords, the big business cartels, etc., etc. Price fixing, Jesus. You'll recall that Yaron Brook discussed this very insane point on our previous broadcast on capitalism. In fact, he used the same example of how electricity raised the standard of living for millions, and yet anti-capitalists still hated capitalism for doing exactly that. Now you heard it from the horse's mouth. Or maybe it was the horse's other end. I don't know. Then he talks about bankers having created fictitious capital based on mountains of unsupportable debt which periodically goes into spasm. Well, that's a half-truth to the extent that they're protected from market forces by government protections and guarantees. And those guarantees they put on the backs of taxpayers who have to pay for the bad decisions made in a market freed from freedom. You see that? Capitalism is profoundly anti-democratic in the sense that captains of industry and masters of finance who accumulate war chests with which to effectively buy politics, he says. Well, again, that's not capitalism. That's crony politics, and there's no such thing as crony capitalism, since capitalism, by definition, means the absence of coercion without which crony businessmen and politicians could not possibly tilt the market for or against anyone. Ecological destruction is an essential part of this techno-structure, he argues. But this structure described is, again, not capitalism, it's socialism. Markets were never designed to produce public goods like the environment, he says. Well, the environment's not a public good. It exists. It's the environment. In terms of production, there's no such thing as a public good, only a private one. The public is merely a given number of private individuals. So what is he talking about when he's talking about public versus private? Public to a socialist means government, and they don't want you to know that. He says markets were only designed to create private goods. Capitalism can never value the scarce resources of our nature, of our environment. They'll always put a near zero price to it and therefore deplete it until it's gone. Well, that's an outright lie. Pollution and environmental destruction is always the greatest in the collectivist societies and the least in the most capitalist societies because you have property rights. Those so-called scarce resources in nature, by the way, aren't resources at all until some human being turns them into something that can be used through production and become a resource. They always leave that part out. Capitalism has a lot more to do with Chinese Communist Party than with Adam Smith. Oh my lord, too stupid for words. 
This is a purely evil statement and has no basis in reality. Then he says that capitalism is broken. There's no doubt we would not have civilization if we didn't have capitalism, but that's not the issue. What? That's not the issue? Well, if that's true, then everything else you have to say is meaningless or totally sinister in its objective. When we say a society is civilized, that means that the initiation of the use of force between individuals has been legally prohibited and that force can only be used in retaliation or in self-defense, the very essence of the definition of capitalism. The issue is whether capitalism can continue beginning to imagine a transition that we will affect through planning a different way of running our corporations. Well, when Yanis says planning a different way, he means the initiation of force against those who are planning in a nonviolent and consensual way under capitalism. In other words, he's a thug. Imagine a corporation in which every employee has one share and one vote. We all have a bank account with the central bank. Every baby has a trust fund. More democracy, but fewer elections and more lotteries by which to select our authorities. Oh my God, this guy's completely nuts. Totally wacko. How he didn't get laughed off the stage after saying something that stupid is beyond my understanding. Voting and democracy are incapable even of thought, let alone production. Put 11 people in on a corporate board and six of them will be telling the other five what to do. And they won't have any choice in the matter because the majority rules. It's a formula for eternal bickering and warfare, and that's exactly what happens every time you try to arrange any productive endeavor in this way. Disagreement and disassociation are not allowed. Worse, under a collective, there's no one to take responsibility for the outcome, no matter how disastrous. And then there's Katrina Vanden Heuvel, who said capitalism is often equated with freedom and free market democracy. Well, guess what? That's true. She actually made a true statement. But then she says, my country's extractive capitalism is deepening inequality, undermining freedom, endangering democracy, ravaging nature. Well, there's no such thing as extractive capitalism. That's a make-believe nonsensical concept, and that's why she never offered a definition. We urgently need an alternative, she says. The debate over economic systems is stuck in a cartoon caricature offering only two choices, robber baron capitalism or freedom zapping state socialism. And then she talks about all the, all the many flavors of capitalism, Canadian, Nordic, Western European, extractive. Oh, my Lord. You know, first... Any description of capitalism with an adjective in front of it is not capitalism. And second, there are only two choices. Either you prohibit the initiation of physical force in economic relationships, which is called capitalism, or you resort to such force, regardless of what adjective you use to describe the latter. But you can't use the noun capitalism. Three major ways U.S. capitalism is broken. It fuels extreme inequality. It consumes democracy and destroys nature. Oh my God, none of those verbs can even correspond to the nouns described. That's, that's sophistry, the language of fools. Note that collectivist thugs are always concerned about inequality, which to them means economic inequality, not equality before and under the law, which is what they are explicitly opposed to. But the minute Peter produces a product that has value, either to himself or to some other person by means of voluntary exchange, there is an automatic inequality between Peter and the proverbial Paul, who has produced nothing. In other words, fueling inequality. A moronic term that means that someone has produced something while someone else did not. That's ridiculous. And consuming democracy? That's a meaningless phrase. You can't consume democracy. What, what do I do? Eat it? Do I put sugar and salt on it? What the hell? This is the language of fools again, of which I'll speak later. And naturally, being a total fool, 
Vanden Heuvel must resort to racism, gender, and yikes, even geographic differences. And then she wishes that we had fewer billionaires and many more thousandaires and, and thinks that her country would be better off, which is not only totally false, but it's a moral obscenity. My Lord. Most families don't have 500 in the bank. I don't begrudge people who have done well, she says right after having begrudged them. <laughs> oh, Lord. She's not going to just tweak capitalism. She's going to do a real deep, systemic, structural redesign. Well, of course, she's a complete dictator. What the hell does she think gives her, or even a group of people like her, the right to determine that those are the terms on which you and I will have to live? Here, Vanden Heuvel is being completely dishonest because socialism is a perfect word to call what she doesn't want to call socialism. He says, we may not call it capitalism, but we won't call it socialism. And then she describes this magical system which will have some individual freedoms and private enterprises and small businesses and billionaires will pay more and, oh my lord, you know, and she's going to demand limits on wasteful consumption, especially among the richest 10%. <laughs> and she doesn't know what to call it. Call it what you will. Inclusive capitalism. Capitalism with a conscience. Regenerative economy. Capitalism 3.0, etc., etc. Oh, my God. We're not talking about socialist planning, but about a different kind of capitalism, which will enhance the power and possibilities. Uh, I mean, that was the biggest pile of verbal excrement I've seen spew from a human orifice in a long time. Talk about boldface lying to our face. Make it up as you go along BS. Not a single objective definition, nor any concern with even having one. I mean, call it what you will. Okay, I call it greed, envy, and pure evil to the core. Satan himself could not have presented us with a greater prescription for evil than this woman just did. And have you ever noticed how only capitalism apparently is capable of creating poverty or any of the so-called inequities and evils identified by this evil woman? This is all about what Ayn Rand said. The hatred of the good for being the good. And if there's any real evidence of capitalism creating depravity, Katrina Vandenhuvel is it. And as if those two Marxist fools weren't bad enough, with friends like the following two defenders of capitalism, well, I'll tell you, capitalism doesn't need any enemies. Supposedly, but not, speaking against the motion, were Arthur Brooks, Harvard professor and author, and David Brooks, political commentator, New York Times columnist and author. And here are two perfect examples of why so-called conservatives of the right wing are incapable of defending freedom and capitalism. I'm on the capitalism side of this debate because poverty is the thing I care about the most. I remembered when I was a young boy the haunting images of poverty that came from the East African famine of the early 1970s. This was the first time most Canadians and Americans had ever seen the face of true grinding poverty. The, the boy with flies on his face and a distended belly in the National Geographic magazine. You remember it, so do I. It haunted me, and you. I wanted to know what could be done, but the implication was that nothing could be done. The world couldn't get better. I had assumed, like two-thirds of Americans and probably most Canadians, that poverty had gotten worse since I was a child. I was wrong. Since 1970, when I was a young child, four-fifths of starvation-level world poverty has been eradicated. That is a humanitarian achievement beyond our wildest dreams. I had to know why. I went in search of why. It's five forces that did this. Globalization much maligned today, free trade, despised on the right and the left, 
It was property rights and the rule of law. It was the culture of entrepreneurship that brought your ancestors to this great country that pulled two billion of your brothers and sisters out of poverty. That, my friends, is the essence of how capitalism saves lives. We need to spread capitalism more widely. We need to push it into the corners of the world where it doesn't exist. Why? Because people need to throw off the tyranny of their poverty and the tyranny of the leaders that want to hold them in status regimes down so that they cannot live up to their God-given potential. Tonight, we're debating whether we should turn our backs on capitalism. Like I said before, reform it. Find better ways to regulate it. Tax people more. I won't like it, but this is democracy. It's fine. But to turn our backs on capitalism per se is to turn our backs on the people around the world whom we've never met and will never see. But we have the privilege of lifting up with our system, with the gift to the world that is our values of freedom and competition. Capitalism, in my view, the democratic free enterprise system, you know what its greatest accomplishment is? It's the welfare state. We're actually able to help pull people out of poverty that we've never seen and we'd never meet in our own society. I know it's surprising coming from a proponent of capitalism, but that's my view. If you love your fellow men and women and you want to try new programs that will pull them up out of poverty, that will give them new opportunities, you better find the capital someplace. That's going to come from private businesses. That's going to come from private individuals who have the capital to pay the tax. Capitalism is a machine. Capitalism, socialism is a machine. Any ism is a, is a structure that's not inherently moral or, or immoral. People are moral. You know, we have hearts. We have brains. Morals have to come before markets. And what I'm optimistic about is our ability as a, as a society with ingenuity is to actually figure out what's going wrong, to create social movements that will make it so. I mean, this is exactly what Katrina and Giannis are talking about, is social movements that will bring the people together to get what they want. Now, I was a socialist in college. I read magazines like The Nation. Socialism is the most compelling secular religion of all time. My socialist sympathy, sympathies did not survive long when I became a journalist. I quickly noticed the government officials I was covering were not capable of planning the society they hoped to create. It wasn't because they were stupid or bad. Society is just complicated. I came to realize that capitalism is really good at doing something socialism is really bad at, creating a learning process to help people figure stuff out. If you want to run a rental car company, capitalism has a whole bevy of market and price signals that tells you what kind of cars people want to rent, how many cars to order, where do you put locations. It has a competitive profit-driven process to motivate you to learn and innovate every day. That's the biggest single difference. Socialist planned economies interfere with price and other market signals in a million ways. They suppress the profit motives that drives people to, be, to learn and improve. It doesn't matter how big your computers is, you can never gather all the relevant data from a central place. The state cannot even see the tiny, irregular, local, context-driven variables that make all the difference. The state cannot predict people's desires. Capitalism creates a relentless learning system. Socialism doesn't. The sorts of knowledge capitalism produces are often not profound, but they produce enormous wealth. 
All of human history was basically a flat living standard till capitalism, now a 10,000% rise, 10, rise. Over the past century, planned economies have produced enormous amounts of poverty and scarcity. What's worse is what happens when political elites realize what they can do with a scarcity. They can sell it. If things are scarce in such a system, you have to bribe people to get it. Soon everybody's bribing. Citizens soon realize the whole system is a fraud. Socialism produces more economic and political economy than capitalism because the real rulers turn into gangsters. A system that begins in high idealism, ends in corruption, dishonesty, oppression. Capitalism, like all human systems, has problems. And you could persuade me to do a lot of things to fix them. We need worker reforms. We need worker co-ops to build skills and represent labor at the negotiating table. We need wage subsidies so people are not swept away by the creative destruction of the free market. We need a carbon tax to use capitalism me mechanisms to fight global warming. We need wage subsidies. And all these ideas I've just cited come from places like the American Enterprise or the Brookings Institution that are supposedly the detritus of, of economic neoliberalism. The big mistake those of us on the conservative side made was to equate all government action as part of one thing. But government action comes in two varieties. There's supporting government action, which helps people become better capitalists. And then there's regulation, which gets in the gears of capitalism and screws things up. The answer is found in fixing our economy, making a wider capitalist economy, a fairer capitalist economy, not something else. The single greatest problem with inequality, with despair, the single greatest solution is education, human capital, social support, and decent lives. The poorest wagers in America are rising twice as fast as everybody else's because we're finally getting, increasing the high school graduation rate. In this country, you reduced poverty by 20% recently, part because of a child tax credit. There are ways to fix this thing by pouring into early childhood education, nurse family partnerships, better job training, better community colleges. That is a, the way you grow. Now the second thing is, is there an alternative here? The fact is, we haven't said anything new here. They haven't said much that's new here. We've had this debate for 150 years about planning versus the market. We've run this experiment. The market won for all its flaws. The key debate right now in the world is not capitalism versus socialism. It's fair, firm, democratic capitalism like here in Canada and authoritarian capitalism as in China. The argument is how do we make our capitalism more democratic because there really is no alternative. We already ran this experiment. Capitalism is morally complicated to me. I think it does arouse energy and I think it does arouse optimism and hope. But I also think it drives a consumerist, materialist mentality. I think it also creates a hyper-individualistic privatism, my world, who cares about the common good? I do think capitalist countries suffer from that. And so if you want to say capitalism should be your worldview and your philosophy and your moral creed, I say you're going to be a selfish bastard. <laughs> so you better to be a good person. You better have a separate creed and a value system and a moral system that comes from a separate place, probably outside capitalism and often pushing against capitalism. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And what you just heard is just wrong in every possible way. 
Arthur Brooks says he's on the capitalism side of the debate because poverty is what he cares about. Well, that's easy to say, but the rest of his argument wasn't consistent with his virtue signaling. Capitalism is not about solving poverty. It's about production and the freedom to produce. The alleviation of poverty is just a byproduct of that process, a process based on the morality of capitalism. And he talks about how capitalism saves lives, you know, through property rights and rule of law and globalization, free trade, etc. Actually, that's not the essence. At best, it's the consequence of the essence, which is all about morality and the prohibition of the use of force in the marketplace. That's the essence. And it's not that capitalism saves lives. It doesn't save any lives. It is that socialism isn't around destroying lives through restrictions of individual freedom. That's the difference between the two systems. Wherever there is poverty in the world, there is some a-hole stopping people from surviving on their own. And they're usually called collectivists of some shape. Put any adjective you want on it. Jeez. He wants to reform capitalism. Tax people more. This is democracy. Capitalism's greatest accomplishment is the welfare state. My God, I almost fell over when I heard him say that. Can you believe that? This is a right-wing conservative. The welfare state... Not to be confused with welfare programs designed to assist the poor. Two different things. But the welfare state is the exact opposite of anything to do with capitalism. He says if you love your fellow men and women, you have to find capital someplace, so we've got to take it from the businesses and individuals who pay the tax. He literally said it. In other words, Arthur Brooks is an outright Marxist. Make the rich pay. And when you do that through the use of state force, you are practicing evil. By the way, all welfare states are temporary. They collapse when the state credit card runs out because it always does. Because given enough time, they end up killing the golden goose from which all the wealth is created. Future generations end up paying the price for past thefts and expropriations. Capitalism is a machine, he says. Socialism is a machine. Any ism is a structure and it has nothing to do with morality or immorality. We have to create social movements to bring people together to get what they want. Oh my Lord, this is such an immoral statement that it's difficult to believe Arthur Brooks was not completely embarrassed to say it in public. Morality ends where a gun begins. Capitalism prohibits the use of force. Socialism depends on the use of initiatory force. Socialism always fails because it is an immoral system. Capitalism always succeeds because it is a moral system. That's the whole point of having morality. So you can define what is right and what is wrong. And to call for social movements for people to get what they want is an outright call for mob violence and the destruction of life, liberty, and property. Shame on them. And talk about being completely materialistic. Let's get what we want. That very term suggests that the plan is to take what you want from another person who went to the effort of creating and earning that which you would take from him just because you want it. I, I, I'm just beside myself over this. And then there's David Brooks, who says he's a socialist in college. But he, again, missed the whole fundamental of what capitalism's about. He says capitalism creates a learning process to help p people figure stuff out. No, it doesn't. Some people never learn. But they can... Work for others who do learn. What capitalism creates is the environment of freedom in which people may employ things that they might already know but aren't allowed to use that knowledge in a controlled economy. Then he, then he talks about how capitalism has problems and we need to fix them. Workers reform, wage subsidies. We've got to have a carbon tax as a mechanism to fight global warming. Does he not know 
that the whole effort to fight global warming is a socialist plan, that's a socialist agenda. Then he says it's not about capitalism versus socialism, it's about democratic capitalism like here in Canada, or authoritarian capitalism like in China. The question is how to make capitalism more democratic because there's no alternative. Oh my lord! According to this perverted line of reasoning, there are simply no other systems of government in the world except for capitalism. They're all various forms of capitalism with some kind of adjective in front of them. And to call China capitalist is an obscenity. Do not confuse business activity with capitalism, the social system of individual rights. Capitalists and business existed long before capitalism was ever discovered or identified as such. Capitalism's morally complicated to me, he says. It drives a consumerist, materialist mentality. It creates hyper-individualistic privatism. My world, who cares about the common good, he says. And yet everything he advocates is motivated by a materialist mentality. One that is only consumerist. Yet another stupid word that means nothing in this context. Capitalism is based on a production mentality, not a consumption mentality. Every, every country in the world is consumer-oriented. That's why they're poor. They're consuming things they haven't produced. That's the difference. Capitalism is the only form of economic relationship that can produce wealth. And these so-called capitalists merely see it as some kind of system to be slaughtered after the wealth has been produced so that they can decide who distribute other people's earned wealth to. These people are all putting themselves in the place of a dictator. They all see themselves as the savior, Jesus Christ himself. They're going to go out and they're going to save the world. Makes me puke. These are the altruists who are destroying the world. If you want to say capitalism should be your worldview and your philosophy and moral creed, I say you're going to be a selfish bastard, says David Brooks. No, David Brooks, you are the selfish bastard. You are every bit the thug that all of the other participants in this so-called debate are. The person who produces something is the only one entitled to keep the product of his productions and earnings, or to trade them or sell them. Those who would steal it from him are the greedy ones and the selfish bastards, wanting to live at the expense of someone else without that person's consent. And then he says, to be a good person, you better have a separate creed and value system and moral system that comes from a separate place outside capitalism and pushes against capitalism. So in other words, given that capitalism is the moral system that prohibits the use of force, to be a good person, you have to be willing to initiate force and violence against the producers and earners in our society. So having heard that, I don't know which side of the debate is the more morally depraved. And again, if David and Arthur Brooks are supposed to be friends of capitalism, then capitalism doesn't need any enemies. All of the participants in this monk debate profoundly hated capitalism and were completely incompetent to even discuss it, especially since not a one of them even knew what capitalism is and never even tried to define it. I noticed that one person who posted to the CPAC site offered the following similar observation, and it was made by a few people. This was posted by Canadian Libertarian, quote, Yanis should consider buying a dictionary. Apparently he doesn't know what capitalism is. Same goes for the rest of these hacks who are not actually arguing for or against free market capitalism. They're all arguing in favor of economic interventionism or central planning of some form. This whole debate is a sham. A true free market capitalist would destroy all of their arguments, which is no doubt why none were invited to this so-called debate." End quote. Now, I didn't include all of David Brooks' comments in our audio bites, but among them was his personal belief that immigrants coming to the United States were the real beneficiaries of capitalism there. And this was a complete non-sequitur to the motion regarding fixing capitalism. 
but it also presented a tragic irony. Many of those same immigrants coming to the U.S. and Canada, thanks to the social and economic conditions created by freedom and capitalism, also apparently want to fix capitalism so that it will become socialism. So on this side of our next bumper break, we'll hear from Gloria Alvarez, as seen on October 24th's PragerU presentation, addressing that very issue. And on the return side of our bumper, we'll be hearing the voice of none other than the late Nobel economist Milton Friedman, similarly addressing the appeal of socialism way back in 1980. I live in Guatemala and I work throughout Latin America. And I want to speak to the millions of fortunate Hispanic immigrants living in the United States, legally or not. I have a question for you. Why do you support the same policies in the US that cause you to flee your home country? The policies I'm talking about are those that lead to a bigger and bigger central government. You know only too well that the more power the government has, the more corrupt it becomes. My home country, like most other nations in Central and South America, is very poor. 54% of the population lives in poverty, and 13% live in extreme poverty. Half of all children under five are chronically malnourished. Crippling government corruption is the norm. Opening a new business can take months, even years, because of a multitude of regulations that are designed to line the pockets of bureaucrats. So the cost is much too high for the average citizen. Quite simply, unless you're politically connected in Guatemala, you probably want to leave. And in the last 20 years, many Guatemalans have left. Or to put it more honestly, they fled. The fortunate ones reached the United States, the freest and wealthiest nation in human history. There are at least one million Guatemalans living in the US. Nearly every Mexican and Central and South American immigrant in the United States, whether they immigrated legally or illegally, moved or fled to the US for the same reasons, economic opportunity and the freedom to shape their own lives. In short, you came to the United States to participate in what Americans call the American dream. But have you ever asked yourself, why is the United States so free, so much less corrupt, and so much more affluent than any Latin American country? The answer lies first and foremost in the unique American belief in limited government. Why? Because the smaller the government, the less the corruption. And the smaller the government, the more individual freedom and personal responsibility. And given those things, along with hard work and talent, you can accomplish your life's goals. What I want to talk about is really an issue which is very much related to the whole problem of human freedom. It has to do with the question of whether capitalism is humane and what you mean by that. The interesting thing to me about this is that the, the arguments, the issues in this debate which has been going on for so long about the form of government have changed. The argument used to be about strictly the form of economic organization. Should we have government control of production and distribution, or should we have a market control? And the argument used to be made in terms of the supposedly greater efficiency of centralized government and of centralized control. 
Nobody makes that argument anymore. There is hardly a person in the world who will claim that nationalized industries or socialism as a method of economic organization is an efficient way to organize things. The examples of Great Britain, the examples of Russia, the examples of some of the other states around the world that have adopted these measures, plus the domestic grown examples of the post office and its fellows, have put an end to that kind of talk. But the interesting thing is that nonetheless, there is widespread opposition for ca to capitalism as a system of organization, and there is widespread support for some vague system labeled socialism. The most dramatic example of the change in the character, the argument, and the paradox that I'm really bringing out is Germany. Here was Germany, which experienced all the horrors of the Nazi totalitarian state in the 1930s. Here is Germany, which after the war, under the Erhard policy of Sozialmarktwirtschaft, social market economy, had an economic miracle with an enormous rise in total income, enormous rise in the well-being of the German people, of the ordinary people. And yet, in Germany, despite the demonstration of the horrors on the one side of a totalitarian state, and on the other, of the benefits of a relatively free market, here in Germany you will find a very large fraction of all intellectuals remain, anti, uh, not only remain, have become even more strongly anti-capitalist, have become proponents of collectivism of one form or another. Only a small number have gone into the more extreme versions that you've been reading about in the paper of the, of the uh, uh, terrorists. But a very large fraction of the intellectuals, those who write for the newspapers, those who are on television and so on, are fundamentally anti-capitalist in their mentality. And the question is why? What is it that has produced this shift? Now, one of the most, or not this shift, what is it that produces this consistent attitude of anti-capitalism on the one hand and pro-something called collectivism on the other among intellectuals? One of the most interesting analyses of these problems I know is by a Russian dissident mathematician named Shafarevich. His essay, which has never been published, needless to say, in Russia, but uh, it, it appears in English translation in a book called Under the Rubble, which has been edited by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And I strongly recommend that particular paper to you. In it, he discusses the appeal of socialism over the ages. He goes back 1,000 or 2,000 years. And he comes out with the conclusion that just as Freud pointed to the death wish in individuals as a fundamental psychological propensity, the appeal of capitalism, he argued, I'm sorry, the appeal of socialism and the opposition to capitalism is really a fundamental sign of a death wish for society on the part of intellectuals. It's a very intriguing strange and at first sight highly improbable kind of an interpretation. Yet I urge you all to read that essay because you will find that it is very disturbing by having a great deal more sense to it than you would suppose such a position could possibly have. This from Under the Rubble quote, 
The fatal nature of socialism has never been noticed, but the closer you become acquainted with socialist philosophy, the clearer it becomes that there is no error here, no aberration. The organic connection between socialism and death is subconsciously or half-consciously felt by its followers without in the least frightening them at all. On the contrary, this is what gives the socialist movements their attraction and their motive force. This cannot, of course, be proved logically. It can be verified only by checking it against socialist literature and the psychology of socialist movements, end quote. And if you, if you heard him, Friedman practically described the four participants in the Monk debate when he noted that, quote, there's a widespread opposition to capitalism and widespread support for some vague system labeled socialism, which they all denied. Why, asked Friedman. Well, I think the root of the reason is because they all want something for nothing and to be able to live their lives without the effort necessary to do so. It's not capitalism that's the system of greed and selfishness. It is socialism and all those who call for the democratization of capitalism. Think about it. When two or more people decide to voluntarily associate with one another, whether for social reasons or economic ones or whatever, how do you democratize that? How does one democratize those freely chosen relationships? Only one way. You interrupt them. You prevent them from happening through the use of coercion and force which by its nature is anti-capitalist. Now, why have I been calling all of the participants in the Monk debate outright fools? I was reminded of Isabel Patterson's brilliant observation made in her book, The God of the Machine, and I've referred to this before. And I quote, Marx's terminology reduces verbal expression to literal nonsense on the basis of fact and usage. This is not obvious gibberish but the arrangements of words according to the rules of grammar, in which each word taken separately has a customary meaning, but which, in a given sequence, the sentence, means nothing at all. For example, let it be said that an isosceles triangle is green. The several words are in common use, and as parts of speech they're placed in the proper order, but the statement is absurd. That's bad enough, but it would be rather worse if one spoke of the roundness of a triangle. The phrase, dictatorship of the proletariat, is like the roundness of a triangle. It's a contradiction in terms and has no meaning. This is specifically the language of fools. For the deficiency which is indicated by the word fool is the incapacity to understand categories and the relation of things and qualities. End quote. So again, capitalism with some sort of adjective in front of it always means not capitalism. It's also evidence of the language of a fool. So as you can see, capitalism has no credible defenders in this year's Monk debate. So when it comes to the condition of capitalism, either it exists or it does not exist. That's a completely existential alternative. And if capitalism ceases to exist altogether, then we'll all be faced with another existential threat. And I'll leave you to ponder what that might be over the holiday season. So be sure to join us again next year when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, have a safe and enjoyable holiday season. And as always, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Frazier! 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 Frazier!
The Existentialist Club once named me most likely to be. 